Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show where you will learn about navigating the healthcare system, education, empowerment, and advocacy for all. My first guest is Dr. Dennis Durrell. He is the Executive Director of Hospital Medicine with American Physician Partners, APP, based in Nashville, Tennessee. With over 20 years in practice, Dr. Durrell comes to the rescue with a nonpartisan explanation of healthcare law. He uses simple football terms to help us understand how to navigate our new healthcare. He's also the author of the book entitled Your Healthcare Playbook, Winning the Game of Modern Medicine. Dr. Durrell, Dennis, thank you for coming in the house and talking with us about how to take charge of our health. It is my pleasure. Thank you. Oh, well, let's get to it. Let's navigate if we can. And I'm, I hope you are going to help us learn how to navigate modern healthcare insurance because I find it kind of dizzying. Yes. Well, you know, when I decided to write my book and use the NFL as my overarching metaphor, and I worked with the NFL on the book, I really like to describe it as healthcare is fragmented teams of teams. <laughs> There's a lot of teams in healthcare. There's your primary care doctor team. There's your cardiologist, there's, you know, your insurance, they're part of the team and they're very fragmented. As we all know, where you get your MRI might be different than where your doctor is. And so we really have a struggle to kind of pull that into one team instead of being fragmented. And that's what the book is all about. So it is a formidable challenge, though, because healthcare is challenging. It is. I mean, we are navigating so many different ways right now of getting our health care. Talk a little bit about those five different kinds of health care insurance plans that exist today in America. Yeah, just in general, first of all, most people get their insurance through their employer. So I think that's a good way to think about, you know, 180 million people are going to get it through their employer, but there's a large segment that are going to get it through the government, for example, Medicare and Medicaid. And so I kind of look at whether you're able to pick it and choose yourself or whether you it's chosen for you. I kind of call one being drafted, like you're drafted in the NFL, you don't have a choice. And when you do have a choice, then, you know, you're a free agent. So most of us, most people are free agents. They do get their insurance through their employer, typically, not all. And then, you know, you have options. So once you have options, you need to look at the different plans that are available. And in general, in general, you're thinking about how much you want to spend out of pocket and you're thinking about what your normal healthcare costs are, and then how much freedom do you have or need to make choices to go see specialists on your own, to go um, to choose your doctors on your own. And so those are kind of the overarching principles. In general, a preferred provider network or a PPO or a PHO, you're gonna have the most flexibility, you're gonna be able to see specialists when you want, you have the most freedom, but it typically is going to cost more. And inside a PPO, you can have a high deductible or a low deductible. If you spend a lot of money on health care, then you probably, you know, you want to have that lower deductible and spend more on your premiums. If you don't spend a lot on health care, it's better to have a high deductible, take the chance that you won't need much care and have a lower premium. And then your fixed cost every month is lower. 
So a PPO is the most flexible. Then you need to make a decision about whether you want a high or low deductible. If you want to reduce your cost, but you're going to give up some freedom of being able to see specialists, then there are plans that are more HMO-like, right? So that's more of a managed care. And, you know, you have less costs in your premium, but you also need to get approval typically to go to a specialist. Your primary care doctor has to see you first. There's a little less freedom to go out of network. It's a more what we call narrow network. And so we're kind of trading cost for freedom. And then, of course, inside an HMO, you can have a high deductible or low deductible plan. So if you think about and inside those, that's really kind of the five plans. There are some other derivatives that are kind of permutations of that. But in general, those are the plans that you're looking at. In the case of someone where is it where they've gone to their state exchange, so they're an undrafted free agent, as you call it, right? So they're not affiliated. They're not getting their insurance from their employer. They might be a solopreneur, an entrepreneur, or a small business. Yes. Or in the case of being Medicare or Medicaid, where they're getting their insurance from the government and then paying whatever the supplement costs are for that. That's right. H- how can those two areas utilize their health care in a better way? Because I know that there are restrictions and limitations when you go either of those two routes. That's right. So if you're going to go to the exchange, so you're not getting it through your employer, then you're going to have some options, but you're going to enter data. As I talk about in the book, you start entering, just go into your exchange for your state, or some states have deferred to the national exchange, of course. If you enter your personal information, then it's going to tell you all the plans that you're eligible for. You might be eligible for Medicaid based on your income, and it's going to kind of send you in that direction for those plans. If you're eligible for a private plan but with a subsidy, it'll tell you what that subsidy is and what part that you'll have to pay. If you're in Medicare, and there are different ways to get in Medicare, by either by age or by being disabled or being on dialysis and having Medicaid and Medicare, then you're going to be steered to those plans based on those. So it's always good to check in the exchange and put in your information, and then it'll give you a bunch of options and then start looking at the plans and playing with them. You can click on them. You can see who their doctors are, which I talk about in the book. You want to know who your healthcare team is and make sure if you have a healthcare team, they're part of that panel for that insurance for sure. And if you're on special medications, you want to look inside of each plan and see what your copay will be and of your specific drugs. And you can even drill into it on that level. So the exchange is a great place to go. And you might even, based on your income, get part of it paid for. So you could get some basically compensation or part of your defrayed cost for the cost of the plan. But there are some restrictions. It's my understanding on the exchange plans. Like for example, one could live in one state, have to travel to another state, but be unable to get health care in that the state that one travels to except under emergency care. So say I go to take care of a relative in another state for six months because of COVID. To access that care in the state where I'm visiting is almost impossible unless I need to go to the ER. That's true, but that's true of any plan. Any plan plan can do that. So you just have to look at each plan. So yeah, your employer plan may have that restriction. You could be in a Medicare Advantage plan. Of course, Medicare has a fee-for-service side and a Medicare Advantage side, which is run by an insurance company, and the government pays the insurance company for them to deliver Medicare to you. And so in some of those Medicare Advantage plans, you have geographic limitations as well. Medicaid, you may have that also because Medicaid has become more managed care run, and it's been more state-based. And so I would be careful with any plan relative to their rules when you're out of state. It's interesting. You know, who knew unless you start really reading the fine print of these plans, which is the purpose of why you wrote the book and why you are asking us to be our own advocates and do our homework. That's exactly right. And I walk through a little checklist. How important is your medical team? Now, that may sound crazy, 
Of course, it's always important, but for some people, they've been with a specialist for maybe 10 years. They have several chronic diseases, and it's really important for the continuity of their care to stay with their doctor. So when they look at plans, that's going to be one of their most important things. For someone else that doesn't use a lot of healthcare and they travel a lot, as you've said, maybe they're looking for a very flexible plan with a high deductible, but they want to be able to use it when they travel around the U.S. So it really helps to understand what your priorities are for your family, your health, and then start to look at the plans through that eye. What about learning how to use the plan to get the most out of it? You know, because oftentimes we have so many benefits that come with our plans, but we're not able to, we don't know, so therefore we don't access. That's absolutely right. And there are so many now, there's a lot of competition, believe it or not, to get people on their insurance. And so they're offering a lot of added benefits. For example, there are health coaches. We talk about that in the book. There are gym memberships, for example, that you can get. You have certain rewards that you can get if you, you know, do certain healthy behaviors and earn points, what I call Fitcoin. I use the term <laughs> Fitcoin. You want to know about all of those things. That's exactly right. And most important, most important is knowing when you're out of network. And that's a key thing. If you're out of network, you have a very different set of financial responsibilities. And so as you seek healthcare, I tell everyone to find out, even if you go to an ER and they want a certain doctor to see you, you need to be able to ask, are you in my network? And they should be able to tell you that. Very, very good point about being in network and what that means. It may mean the difference between a 20% copay or whatever the cost of that might be for even a hospital stay, right? Versus nothing. That's exactly right. And one final point Sometimes you don't necessarily want to use your insurance. Now that may be oh, really? intuitive. That yeah, sure because you know, you can sometimes say I would like a self-pay rate for an MRI for example. You could pay $500 for that. If you have to use your insurance, your copay part of that might be $900 and maybe your deductible is, you know, $1800. And you know you're not going to have anything really for the rest of the year, then I'd probably pay the $500 and not use my insurance. The problem is that $500 won't go towards your deductible, but you'll still have less out of pocket possibly for that year. So sometimes for medications, sometimes for procedures and studies, it's almost better to get that lowest self-pay rate, and they have lower rates for that, and they'll tell you. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with my guest, Dr. Dennis Durrell, to learn more about his work, but kind of in a funny way. I'm going to send our listeners to mydocreplay.com and we'll get to what that is when we come back. But mydocreplay.com is an app that Dennis is going to tell us about when we return. But you can connect with the good doctor on Facebook at Dr. Durrell. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And we'll talk more about your healthcare playbook, winning the game of modern medicine. We'll be right back. Hang on just a second. Before we take that break, I want to remind you of the virtues of resilience. Call it hardiness, grit, or resilience. It is essential in recovering from difficulties. And the research has proven that resilient folks have a greater ability to bounce back after challenge and adversity. In fact, resilience is a prized character strength of happy people. And now more than ever, resilience is essential in our new world of work. If you're in charge of hiring for your company, resilience should be part of every job description. Whether you're ready to make your next important hire or need some rehiring tips, Indeed is here to help you meet your workforce hiring needs. Indeed.com is the number one job site platform in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility in your hiring process. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. 
with 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed will help you find the right high-impact hire that you need, just like they have for more than 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash HH. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash HH. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about navigating the healthcare system, education, empowerment, and advocacy for all. Let's get back to the conversation with my first guest, Dr. Dennis Durrell. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about the app, which is available both in the Apple iTunes and Google app stores. What does the app do for us, Dr. Durrell? Well, thank you for allowing me to talk about it. It's something I'm very passionate about. When I wrote the book with the NFL, I was intrigued by the idea of instant replay. Everyone knows you can watch the replay over and over again, and it allows you to really dissect everything that happened again and again. So I created an app that allows you at the end of your visit, you just download it at Apple or Android App Store. When you're at the end of your visit, ask your doctor, is it okay? I have a secure app that allows me to take a video of all the key elements of your instructions, only three to five minutes, and then I'm able to share that with my family, with my spouse, with my son out of state. And so it's really a way to replay back these key instructions that are so important for everyone to be on the same page. So that's the app. And you might say, oh my gosh, that's simple. Why don't I just take a video on my phone? Well, doctors are not going to want you to do a video on your own phone. So we create something that makes them want to use it. First of all, it's secure. Second of all, we erase the videos after 30 days, so they're like Snapchat, they're ephemeral. We ask and people sign that they won't use them in a legal way because we want this to be a memory aid. So it's been very powerful. During COVID, when you can't visit your loved ones, we've had a huge amount of success because now the doctor can make that little video and you can see it without even going into the hospital. So it's been really helpful. So it's a HIPAA compliant platform, basically. It's safe and you can exchange information on there without feeling as though you would be at risk. That's right. Well, it's technically not HIPAA because it is your app, right? It's a patient app, but it is secure and encrypted. If we made it HIPAA compliant, we'd have to have double sign on and all these other things, but it doesn't have to be HIPAA compliant because it is a patient app. It is not part of the medical record, but we did encrypt it and nobody can hack it. And so to that extent, it is as secure as HIPAA. And we just provide a way for doctors to feel safer about making those videos. And this is free, by the way. I think it's important to, to yes. free is good. Free is better. We love that. Yes. It is free. <laughs> it is free because we believe that this is such an important, I mean, in this day and age, when you get all these written instructions and you get these prescriptions and you leave, I mean, literally when I was with my prior employer, we had a president of our company is a lawyer. He got his appendix out and he got home on Saturday and he was asking the doctors in our company what to do. We were like, Jeff, didn't you get instructions? And he's like, I don't remember. He ran in. <laughs> he's <the> delirious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's delirious. And he is an attorney and he runs a healthcare company and it happened to him. So we all have that moment where we're trying to listen. We're trying to take it in. We have emotional responses. So having a video later to watch is just so valuable and it makes sense. Let's circle the conversation back to healthcare utilization, whether we are a high healthcare consumer or a low healthcare consumer, what is our best strategy 
for getting the most out of these plans? You know, I really feel like it's so important to have a good primary care doctor. I call them the head coach. If you think about the NFL, they're yep. the head coach. Yep. You know, you may have a cardiologist, they're kind of the offensive coach and you might have a defensive coach, but the one that's got the big picture of your health, that's your primary care doctor. And so the first thing is get a good one, make sure they're in your plan. Secondly, it is very helpful if everybody on your team, okay, your specialists, your other other assistant coaches, if they're in the same system. Because if they're in the same system, the EMR will all be the same. When you go there, they'll have all the same information. And that is, it's really a good way to keep continuity. So I like to look at a plan and make sure I like the primary care and I like my specialist and they're in the network and they all seem to be in the same system, kind of like Kaiser Permanente, just for an example. If you go to Kaiser, you know, they're all going to have the same record. They own the hospital. They're the insurer. They're the doctor. They're everything. And that's kind of like the NFL. As you get into other plans, it gets a little more fragmented. Maybe my specialist is at Vanderbilt, but I go to this St. Thomas for this. That's okay, but realize as you cross into different systems, you bring a little bit of discontinuity. That is a really good point. Many years ago, I shifted my own healthcare to a university system. I happen to live in a city where we have top university medical center. And mm-hmm. I have found that was one of the best medical decisions I made. I'm a healthy person, but everything is there. I don't have to keep repeating. They can see every test result. They can see every scan. And it made my life so much easier. Plus, I had access to top doctors. So that's it. That's the win-win-win. Oh, it was right wonderful. There. I like that. That's the ideal situation. I would also say that a lot of people, particularly when you're young, but you know, even as you get into your 30s and 40s, we often forget that a good visit once a year to set up your health game plan, which I talk about, is really important. There are some preventative things now that we need to do. There are, it's a good idea. I have seen patients in my career. I remember when I first started, I saw this young man, he was 25, he came for an employee physical. Couldn't have been simpler. And in fact, you know, he probably thought I was just going to rubber stamp it and get him out of there. But I did a full exam and I talked to him as I would any patient. And I found a nodule on his thyroid and it turned out that he had thyroid cancer and it was life saving for him. So I do believe that that once a year checkpoint touch in and do that is really important. So I, I think also make sure you get that appointment. That's something you're entitled to. Yeah, every plan will pay for it. Even the most basic of plans will pay for a yearly exam. Yes, and it's good to talk through all the aspects of your health, right? And that includes mental health. That includes some of your goals for exercise and diet. That includes quitting smoking, for example. There's there's a lot of things, and you know, you might be due for a vaccine, for example, that's maybe new that you didn't have before. Shingles is a good example. There's a shingles vaccine now. So I think just having that annual exam is key to being in good health. Let's talk a little bit about unexpected bills and costs, you know, how to troubleshoot. Yeah, so this is a real conundrum. Congress has been allegedly ready to pass a surprise bill, surprise medical bill. I call it oops because it's out-of-pocket spending and it's unexpected. So I put the exclamation point in the oops. And it's not a good oops when someone tells you that you owe 20% of a $40,000 hospital stay. And so it's really important, I think, to do preventative. Like I talk about, it's better when you go into a hospital or into a medical setting to say, I need to know if all of these services are in network. But let's say you get through that and you find out that it wasn't in network. The best thing to do is make sure that you let your insurer know right away. It's very important to file that counterclaim to them. And you need to get your bill from the hospital too. And then you send it and say, I was not aware that this was out of network. And that starts the process for you to begin to say, hey, I was not aware of that. 
But if you wait and let a certain time go by, sometimes you pass that window. There's no way for the insurer to handle that. Oh, uh, they send so, you to collections. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. I had that experience. Talk about an appendectomy. I had an emergency appendectomy. Everything was okay in network. Boo, boo, boo. I thought it was over. And then I got a bill from the person that stitched me up. Oh, gee. For $1,000. I mean, okay, fine. I paid it. But I was like scratching my head. How could this not have been part of the package? Well, and that's why the first step, I couldn't agree more, is get your bill, get it lined up, and then send that to the insurer and say, I do not feel that this was appropriate. I wasn't aware this was out of network. And sometimes there's a mistake. And that's why it's good to send it back. Because if you send in something to the insurer, then they can go back and check. And it might have been an error that they're in or out of network. The other thing is that they will sometimes negotiate on your behalf with them, or sometimes they'll end up paying it. So it's always good to push back is my point. The second thing is, like you did, if it turns out no matter what you do, you're stuck, then it's best to contact the actual person that you owe the bill to and let them know about the situation. Not all the time, but sometimes they will reduce their fee because they realize you're caught between a rock and a hard place with that. And they won't always. And then finally, sometimes they'll allow you to pay on a payment plan. The other thing is some states now, so this is important like New York State. Some states have a mandatory process to handle these. And if that is the case, as I talk about in the book, you want to research whether your state has that because they will force arbitration. They'll have a process and you'll be able to go through that process and you'll probably end up being better than having to pay it on your own. These are really, really good tips. Um, my final question has to do with medication. What about medication? Well, you know, medication and surgery, anything that you do, whether it's putting in your body or doing to your body, I talk about it's like throwing a pass. Woody Hayes famously said, he's a coach at Ohio State, when you throw a pass, three things can happen and two of them are bad. So think about <laughs> that, right? You have an interception and you could drop it. And the good thing is you catch it and run. But when you have surgery or you take a pill or you do anything, you could be better, you could be worse, you could be the same. Now, if you're the same, then you don't want the risk of the side effects or the risk of the surgery. So that's not good. And if you're worse, of course, it's bad. So I want everyone on the front end to really ask their doctor, what are my options? What if I don't take this pill? What if I don't have this toe fixed? What if I don't? What am I going to look like here? What am I going to look like here? What is the risk-benefit ratio? And that's so important uh, for you to push back on a little bit. For example, I talk about in the book, you know, I have, my blood pressure was up. My doctor said, yeah, you need to go on this medication. I said, I'd like to try to lose some weight first. And he's like, you're not going to lose weight. And I'm like, I'm going to try. And I did. And then I didn't need medication. So I think it's good to think about what are my options without medicine. And then if I'm going to have medicine, I want to know my side effects up front, please. So you go in in an informed way. I so appreciate that tip because once again, that puts the control back in our court, you know, back on a home field advantage. That's exactly right. And, you know, I talk about the doctor being the head coach, but remember, the head coach really has a conversation with the quarterback. You talk about the options, but at the end of the day, the quarterback is back in there running that play. And that's what you are. So you want the advice, you want to co counsel with your doctor, but at the end of the day, one that's going to run that play, and it is your life and it is your health. And so I like that shared decision-making model. Now, some patients are like a new player. They're like, coach, I don't know what to do. You just tell me the play. Fine. You know, some patients say, doc, I don't know what to do. You just tell me what you do for your mom. Okay. Other people want to have what I call that shared decision, like coach doctor. What you don't want is a coach that, that, you know, like 40 years ago where they basically told you what to do. That kind of medicine and that kind of coach is not really what you want. 
We are out of time. This has been so informative and really, really enlightening. To learn more about MyDoc Replay, please go to mydocreplay.com. You can also obtain the free app for Android and Apple at the app stores. The book we've been talking about today is Your Healthcare Playbook, Winning the Game of Modern Medicine. And my guest, who I thank from the fullness of my heart, because I think this is really good stuff, is Dr. Dennis P. Durrell. Thank you so much, Dr. Durrell. I've really enjoyed this conversation. The pleasure was all mine. And stay healthy, everybody. We're going to take a brief pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. And we are back continuing our conversation about navigating the healthcare system, education, empowerment, and advocacy for all. My next guest is Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani, Jr. Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani has enjoyed a career spanning more than 40 years as a practicing clinical pharmacist. He's an advocate for better health services and resources to enhance the health of boys and men. He has held faculty appointments at both Columbia University and Belmont University. He has authored over 70 peer-reviewed and general media articles in healthcare and health policy, And he's here today to give us some brain food about ways that we can better care for our health and manage the system in air quotes, especially now in the era of COVID-19. Dr. Giorgiani, thanks for joining us on the show. Lisa, thanks so much for having me on the program. It is a pleasure. I am passionate about folks taking charge of themselves, realizing that we do have the ability to control our health in our hands and through our minds and our good decisions and the care that we choose to receive. Let's talk a little bit about the prescriptions that many people take on a daily basis and the variation around the country in the costs of said medications. Yeah, prescription drug prices are a real concern for most Americans, no matter how your prescription drug are paid for, whether it's through Medicare or a third-party payer, through your employer or self-pay, it really is a great concern. And Men's Health Network is always looking at ways to help folks better manage their prescription drug prices. And one of the things that folks have to realize is that since I've been practicing pharmacy over 40 years now, the evolution of how drug prices are paid and established and then managed is become this very, very Byzantine hidden system that is very poorly understood, even by most people in the healthcare industry. What happened in the very, going back a little bit in time, is the entities called prescription drug benefit programs, PBMs, were established way back in the 1970s. And they became very, very important in the 1980s. And in theory, these prescription drug benefit managers were going to help manage the payment of prescription drugs so that people wouldn't have to lay out a pocket the cost of the medicines and get reimbursed. And it became almost an automatic thing where you were being paid by the third party, supported by premiums from your employer or others. And that was supposed to make things easier all the way around. The next step in this whole convoluted system that we have now in 2020 is that these companies started requesting or demanding purchasing kickbacks, rebates, basically, from pharmaceutical companies to allow their drugs to be paid for on their program. That's called a formulary. In theory, those rebates were going to go back to offset the cost of the drug product to the individual patient. So a rebate would be given to the PBM company, and then that rebate would be applied, in theory, to what a person had to pay out of pocket. Well, somewhere along the line, Lisa and folks out there, it it got corrupted, that the PBM companies became part of, or even now we see own, health insurance companies. 
And mm -hmm. lion's share of those rebates and the lion's share of the fees that are paid to the insurance companies or the PBM companies to administer the programs stay with them. They don't go back to the patient. And that, we think, at Men's Health Network is a big problem. So the system has become so difficult to track that Men's Health Network is established. And if you find time to go look at our website, www.menshealthnetwork.com, we've posted five principles of price negotiation that we think will help even this out. So people, it won't be dependent on what kind of plan you have. It won't be so dependent on what kind of a provider you have or what part of the country you live in. It'll be a much more even-handed pricing structure for pharmaceuticals, which is so, so important because out of the out-of-pocket costs go up, the prescription utilization goes down. I want to jump in here and I want to just ask you about the variation in uh, pharmaceutical costs based on zip code, that you can go into one neighborhood and request medication that you have a prescription for, and your prescription, let's say, will be $25. You can go into another neighborhood for exactly the same prescription, and you could have another price that's higher or lower. Yeah, we all, almost all of us, have experienced that with car insurance. So these entities are called pharmacy benefits management companies. Way back when I was starting as a young pharmacist, uh, these PBMs were established to help make it easier for people to pay for their medications and easier for pharmacies to process the billing. So instead of having to pay out your cost of your medication and get it reimbursed by the third-party payer plan, these PBMs became very, very uh, large players and started covering the waterfront uh, so that people would have their medications paid for by the PBMs. But along the line, the PBMs developed relationships with the insurance companies, Blue Cross Blue Shield, that is of the world, on and on and on, United Healthcare, to be their providers. Mm. And some of the good that was intended early on changed direction. So what you have now in establishing prices and reimbursements for pharmaceuticals uh, is a Byzantine system, which uh, really is very, very difficult to follow and depends on contracts, uh, depends on something called rebates, and it depends on where you live in the region and in the provider that your employer or you have to reimburse your healthcare expenses overall. One thing I'd like to mention is that Men's Health Network has on its website, www.menshealthnetwork.org, posted five principles of drug pricing negotiation, which we think will help even out the, the, the cost of drugs and make it a more equitable system. And part of it is, as was recently done through executive order by President Trump, is the establishment of recall on the rebate program. The rebates programs began somewhere in the 1990s, early 1990s, where PBM companies, these benefit management companies for drugs, required manufacturers to buy them rebates based on volume of products that they would purchase. That was, in theory, going to go straight back into the pockets of the patient so that the rebates that were being received by the PBMs would go to offset the out-of-pocket costs for the patient. However, what ended up happening is most unfortunate, and those rebates never got to the patient. By and large, they never got to the patient, only a small percentage of it is. And the majority of those rebates went either to the PBM companies or the third-party payers to offset their costs and became part of their, their profit profile. So part of what Men's Health Network, and we're happy to know that this has been part of the executive order on prescription drug pricing reform, we hope it works, is to ensure that these rebates go back to patients and not back to the insurance companies or the PBMs. So let's talk a little bit about these uh, card programs where if you do not, let's say you do not have insurance, you don't want to put your prescriptions through insurance. There are programs out there where really you can save upwards of 75% where the cost of that medication is pretty darn close to your copay and you don't have the hassle. Right. Those are direct rebate programs back from the manufacturer to the card programs. And many times they work. 
It takes a little bit of research on the part of the patient to find the program and the card that will give them the best benefit, but they, they can work. One thing I'll also alert your listeners to is that they don't always allow you to get better quality drug products. We all have heard about the issues with being reliant on our economic rivals and our geopolitical rivals for supplies of medical products, everything from hand sanitizer and personal protective equipment to medications. And if people remember way back when we we had this big uh, problem with dog food coming from China that was contaminated, we're now seeing that same thing in in medicines. So some of the programs do not allow you to specify what kind of generic drug product you can get. And it's completely up to the, the, the program, the pharmacist, to get the lowest price generic, which isn't necessarily one that's made in a place that you have confidence in. Well, should that medication even be in circulation in the country if it doesn't meet the quality standards? We're assuming as the consumer, if the FDA allows the medication to be approved, that therefore it is safe. And what I'm hearing you say is that that's not necessarily the case. So who, well, is it is it that the, the buyer needs to be aware or the government's not doing its job? But that's another conversation, you know? I don't think it's the government not doing its job. When something is manufactured overseas or out of the country, you know, inspecting a pharmaceutical plant in another country requires a treaty to be in place so that an inspector can actually go to the plant and inspect the plant and look at what they're doing and take random samples of product and then analyze them. When a company overseas puts in an application to market a product, it's a paper application by and large. There's very little oversight from the US FDA or even European regulatory authorities where they also have very high standards. So unfortunately, what people have been seeing, and three great examples, uh, unfortunately great examples, are with Valsartan for blood pressure, for metformin for diabetes, and over-the-counter medicines for heartburn, like Zantac and uh, ranitidine and Semitidine. They were contaminated with, the, with components that would be cancer-producing, and they all had to be recalled. The ones that were made under the, the careful scrutiny of the European Union regulators or the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, they are still on the shelves and people can get them. But the ones from manufacturers in places like China, India, the former Soviet Republic uh, countries, uh, Latin American countries where there isn't any good inspection of the product, it's all approved based on paper, uh, that, that's where the system is falling down. That seems to me that there's not one cohesive body that is approving the efficacy or the veracity of the product itself because it's fractured by, you know, by country mm-hmm. and they put in the paper application. But this is important information for the consumer to know that not all of these products are equal, that there are different levels of quality control based on the country of origin for mm-hmm. the medication. What about the consumer just taking the medication. They're given the prescription by their doctor and maybe uh, educating the consumer a little bit more about the pros and cons of the medication. Yeah, Men's Health Network is starting on a project like that because, believe it or not, Lisa, people have the right to request certain non-branded names of medications. So, for example, we all know in the car business that Toyota, Nissan, GM, they all have different brand tiers of products. They're all fundamentally good product. It may be a little bit different in some things. That the, the plant manufacturing structures and things are different. Same thing holds in pharmaceuticals. So larger pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. and Europe, Bayer, Pfizer, Merck, Lilly, Glaxo, they all have generic subsidiary companies or they give contracts to authorized companies to make the product based on their formula, yeah. based on their quality control standards and protocols, based on their manufacturing structures. So these authorized generics are essentially the innovator product, but made by a different company without all the 
high-tier infrastructure. And you as a consumer can request those. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with my guest today, Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani, to learn more about the Men's Health Network. Please visit Men's Health Network. I have .org, but maybe it's also .com, doctor? No, it's a .org. A .org. And on Twitter and Facebook, Men's Health Network. When we come back, we're going to talk with the doctor about vaccines. I know this is on everybody's mind today in the age of COVID. So let's take a pause. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. back continuing the conversation with Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani. We're talking about navigating the healthcare system, education, empowerment, and advocacy for all. Let's get back to the discussion. So doctor, prior to the break, you were talking about where pharmaceuticals are made, the difference in quality control based upon countries of origin. I'd love to move Mm -hmm. the conversation to vaccines, especially now that we are on hopefully the precipice of there being a release of the first vaccines for COVID-19. Please educate us because there's a lot of worry out there of the first hundred million doses I think it's Moderna that is manufacturing this uh, product. And who's going to step up to the plate to take it? That is a very, very important question for everyone to have good information about and make a good informed decision about getting the vaccine or not getting the vaccine. You know, the, one of the things that people tell me they worry about is since this is moving along so quickly, is there enough data to show both effectiveness, local efficacy, and safety of these vaccines. And let me assure your folks that I believe there will be, at least for the U.S. produced or the European Union produced products. I can't say that I feel very comfortable with what I see happening in Russia or what I hear is happening in China, where China has 13 different vaccines and in development, and it's similar to the problem we were talking about in terms of quality. And in Russia, they haven't even really given it a good third-tier phase three, we call a clinical trial. So they're relying on data that's come from a few hundred people. One of the things that is being done now with the vaccines that are being shepherded through the process in Europe, being union countries and the U.S., is a very strong focus on patient experiences. There are over 32,000 Americans who are true heroes. They have volunteered to take this vaccine, the various doses of the vaccine, and subject themselves to being potentially infected by the COVID-19 virus. These are true heroes. We'll have right off the bat 32,000 patient experiences. Some of them will require two doses. Some are just one dose. But we'll have 32,000 individuals right off the bat as we move into phase two. When we move into phase three, which is going out into a larger population and populations with special underlying medical conditions, such as older persons, we'll have probably over 100,000 exposure experiences as this hits the market. Six months into the market, whenever this is released and the data is looking as if it'll be later this year, we'll have even more exposures in a generalizable market because what I'm sure is going to happen is that healthcare workers will be vaccinated because they are, again, heroes uh, and heroines, that the military 
they will be required to be vaccinated. And we will see we'll have several other tens, possibly hundreds of thousands of individuals. So within six months of this vaccine coming out, we'll have an awful lot of real world experience with those products. Just to give you some context, for the typical medication for blood pressure, diabetes, or uh, you name it, we only see about 2,000 to 4,000 individual courses of therapy being followed for possibly a month, and in some cases up to six months with that particular drug. So, oh. And those are drugs that are taken every day. So those drugs are out on the market with just a couple of thousand or 4,000. I shouldn't really say just. It's That's actually a pretty large number. And that's why biostatisticians command the kind of salaries and prestige that they have because they help construct these trials in a way that gives you some very, very tight assurances that what you're seeing is what you're going to see in a generalized population. So with these vaccines, the way it's proceeding now and having these wonderful uh, volunteers here and this some in Europe as well, stepping up to the plate for humanity's sake. I think we'll have sufficient data, more than people really realize, almost 10 times what you would see for the average antidepressant that comes out onto the market. Mm. The other is these are one-dose or most two-dose therapies. So people say, well, we don't know the long-term effects of the vaccine. That's true, we don't, and we will not know it until six months after the first patients are subjected. But again, uh, Lisa and to folks listening, that is being addressed in some of these early volunteer trials. We'll have a fair amount of data six months out. And then on a rolling basis as the drug, as the vaccines become, are given to broader and broader populations, we'll have more uh, experience. The, the problems we find with drugs that are given chronically for long periods of time, day after day, after day after day, are not the kind of problems you would expect to see with something that is given once or given twice over a 60-day period, which is what we're seeing with these vaccines. So it's a very, very different model. And I think if people don't want to be early adopters to the vaccine and they want to take a wait-and-see approach, God bless in America, you can still do those kinds of things, then I think that that's perfectly reasonable. But people really should consider getting vaccines for COVID. So, first of all, I just want to clarify, the uh, COVID-19 vaccine, it's a live vaccine? No, there, there's a couple of different modalities. One is actually a, an RNA-type strain, which is a, a portion of the RNA of the, of the, of the uh, virus that's being injected in, and part of it is fractions of the virus that are being injected in. Those are the two models I'm aware of. There may be some others I don't know about because there are worldwide lots and lots of 100. models. Right, 100, more than 100 under development. That we know about. Yeah. And there's things going on in India, China, Russia. So we don't know an awful lot about those yet. But suffice it to say, the ones that I would let my wife and I take, or and we're in our 70s, or my kids, my son's a physician, or any of those I think they, you know, they would take, or my grandkids, these are the ones that are under European Union or U.S. control. But these are pieces of either the RNA or fractional pieces of the virus that the body will recognize as a foreign substance and build up immunity to them. It's not the actual, what we call attenuated virus, which means that it's the virus that's been weakened. It's not like the, the shingles virus. So an RNA is what Moderna is. It's an RNA vaccine? Correct. Okay. I, I, I did not understand that. And let's pivot a little bit towards the flu vaccines, because there's always a debate every year about taking the flu vaccine because it's such a hit or miss. Talk a little bit about that and contrast it to the COVID vaccine and why one should favor one or both. Okay, that's a very astute question. When we talk about the flu vaccine, uh, we'll talk about it as the seasonal flu vaccine. And what happens there is that when this flu kind of thing was first recognized, 30 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, pharmaceutical companies had to create a vaccine based on the viruses that were the majority of viruses that were in circulation and causing the pulmonary infections at that time, 20, 30 years ago. And then every year thereafter, 
this was the type of a virus that was able to quickly mutate and had multiple, multiple strains. So there isn't any just one seasonal flu virus. There are multiple strains of these viruses. And it's, uh, at any given year, the scientists who do this very complicated bit of work, they have to predict about six to eight months in advance what they believe the types and strains and mutations or different iterations of that flu strain virus mix are going to be. It's not just one virus, it's several floating around for these seasonal flus. So they have to predict that and then based on their best estimates, uh, and it's not just Kentucky windage, they're very sophisticated approaches, but no matter how good these approaches are, nature finds a way, as that character in Jurassic Park would say, and it has a certain percentage of these seasonal flu viruses that these vaccines are not going to develop appropriate levels of immunogenicity, immune response. So, yes, with that type of seasonal flu over the decades, there are many, many variants, and it isn't always 100%. There are some folks who feel that if you've gotten vaccinated every year for 10, 15 years, you've probably got much better ability to resist the getting the flu because you've been exposed to so many different variants, your your body can sense something, even if it's not what they exactly calculate. But if you're the kind of person who gets one year and maybe not for three more years and maybe not for two more years, you don't have that. Uh, some of us feel that you don't have that high level of immunogenicity or immunologically competent system. So that's the seasonal flu. For COVID, it's very different. We know what it looks like. And thankfully, there are several different mutations of COVID, but they all seem to be very standardized variants on the COVID bacteria, the COVID virus that we first saw raise its ugly little head back in December or January. And then there's one other strain now that's dominating the infection in younger adults in particular, which is the COVID-19 G strain. Mm. But scientists know what it is. So they're making a vaccine that is very specific for what we know it is. Now, hopefully, and everybody's sincere prayer is that it's the case, that the COVID virus is not one of these rapidly mutating viruses, but a much more slowly mutating virus. So we don't know if it's going to be something where they have to adjust the formula or the characteristics every every year, or if it's just going to have this very common physical theme that you can play off of, and one vaccine will give you immunity to small variations. We just don't know that yet. We are almost out of time, and I want to close out by asking you about the power and efficacy of self-care in this process. If we want to build our immunity and be able to protect ourselves in spite of our choices to vaccinate or not vaccinate for the flu or in waiting for a COVID vaccine, how do we arm ourselves as, as consumers and patients and citizens to have the best immunity possible? Eating properly, exercising regularly, managing your overall physical and mental health are so very important. Men's Health Network is one of the organizations that looks at guys, and we think guys need to take a page out of the women's health playbook where they take personal responsibility for doing just the kinds of things that we spoke about to help them lead healthier overall lifestyles. There are other things that can be done, including using essential oils, using certain herbals, using uh, and staying away from kinds of foods that weaken your body's immunologic system, certainly not smoking or vaping and not being a couch potato, as difficult as it is now. You have to be in good physical health so that your body can resist not just the virus, but if you do get the virus, resist the secondary effects of the virus. Yeah, the, long, the long-term deleterious effects. Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani, thank you for joining us on the show. To learn more about the doctor's work, please visit menshealthnetwork.org. And Twitter, it's Men's Health Network. Facebook is Men's Health Network as well. Doctor, thank you for being on the show. We really appreciate your insight and wisdom. I've learned a lot from you today. 
Thanks for having me on, Lisa. I hope it's helpful to your listeners. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Dr. Dennis Durrell and Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani, wishing you kind thoughts, kind words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Remember to stay safe. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.